When I was a youth pastor uh, in Southern California, um, I had a group of, of high school kids, about 70, 80 high school kids. And these high school kids, a lot of them had grown up in the church, and, and we would um, we'd meet on Sunday morning. We'd have like a Sunday school uh, on Sunday morning, and so they would come, and, and it would be just all high school kids. It would be like a church service almost. And when you'd interact with them, ask any kind of question, any kind of anything, uh, there were several of them that had the answer to, um, they had the answer to whatever it was. They, they knew it, they knew it before you even finished asking the question, and they would get it all right, and they would kind of almost do it sometimes as a sassy thing, you know, just to, you know, yeah, 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 I'm done with you already, kind of, you know, whatever. But they'd have these, these answers ready-made. And, and I watched several of these kids, one by one by one, just completely fall away from, from faith, from, from any kind of Christian practice or belief or, or perceptible relationship with God. And it really just was disturbing to me. It's like, how do you take these high school kids and, and get through to them that God is bigger than their, their high school universe. God is bigger than uh, the, the bully or the cool group that's not treating you the way you want to be treated or that you desperately want to be a part of, that God is bigger than what you wear and, and the changing fashions, and God is bigger than being invited to the party that matters. God is bigger than the stuff you have so that you have the latest stuff. God is bigger than whether that girl likes you or not, or that boy likes you or not, that, that God is bigger somehow than, than just what's right in front of you that seems so important, right? I just, I was like, I just felt helpless, like I couldn't get through. And, uh, and I was reading in, in, um, in Scripture this interesting passage about John the Baptist and if you remember John the Baptist, John the Baptist was a full, full tilt prophet, right? I mean, Jesus at least went to parties and, and would, would have a glass of wine, right? John the Baptist was, was a totally different kind of prophet. I mean, John the Baptist was a, a, a serious call you on your sin, like preach at you prophet, right? And he was out in the desert, and you'd have to journey out into the desert to, to hear John the Baptist. And there was a part where Jesus kind of says to people, hey, what did you go out into the desert to hear with John the Baptist? Did, I mean, wh what were you going out into the desert to hear? Just to hear a man, you know, this, that, the other. But the whole phrase of going out into the desert to hear John the Baptist and that Jesus was kind of calling this to attention, this obvious thing that to hear John the Baptist when they went and heard him, that it was this really invested kind of thing, right? So get up, pack your food. There's no, there's no um, on the way. There's no gas stations, fast food restaurant. There's no Wendy's, whatever. Um, so you're packing your food. It's going to be hot. You're, you're going out into the desert. You're going to be there for a long period of time. Then you're going to have to come back. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a significant investment, right? And I remember thinking, wow, that's fascinating. Who would go spend all that time to walk out into the middle of the desert to be full tilt preached at? 
you know, by like a, a prophet prophet. And I remember thinking the people that would do that are the people that are really hungry to hear truth. They're really eager for, for some kind of conversation or some kind of anything about God or to be able to explore that, that that's bigger than whatever else would have kept them home. And I remember thinking about that. That's really a fascinating thought. So the last year I was a youth pastor down there in California, I created what was called the dumbest idea that a youth pastor ever created, uh, otherwise known as the Desert Sermon Series. Now, the Desert Sermon Series was an hour-long sermon that I was going to preach on Friday nights from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock. Because, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because I was like, here, here we go. I'll just write during the football game, right during the party, right when everyone else is going to the movies. I'm going to be in, in somebody's house, and, and, and I'm going to preach theology, and then we can do a Q&A afterwards, and there's going to be no application. A lot of this is going to sound very familiar, right? There's going to be no application, no introduction, and no humor at all. It's going to be... It's just going to be theology, and then we'll do some Q&A afterwards. Um, thought maybe it didn't work then. Maybe it'd work in Bend. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and the whole idea was, yeah, do you, re- do you really want this? Do you really want this? Is, is this really a conversation you want to have more than anything else? Because if so, we, we can have this conversation. And so that was the Desert Sermon Series. Uh, oddly enough, I, I'd say it, it had some significant fruit that came out of it. Um, I asked Melanie to come up and read this um, because in that passage she so eloquently read is, is the greatest nugget of our relationship with God or this thing called Christianity that, that exists in Scripture, or arguably the greatest nugget. If I told you that in what she read was the greatest nugget um, and you had no idea what I was talking about, I think you'd probably begin to get excited and go, oh my gosh, this is kind of exciting. I mean, we all love kind of that mystery, right, and that intrigue and that, that idea of like, uh, I'm finally going to get the goods or, or, I mean, mystery religions took hold in the history of Christianity for a reason. We, we, we love when it's finally going to come out, you know, the conspiracy theory. Now I've finally got the secret formula, the, the answer, the magic. And so we would all probably get really excited. Well, what is it? I mean, if it all boils down, if that's the key, if it's in there, if it's in that passage, what is it? What was it, by the way? Do you guys remember the Spanish part? Because I already forgot. <laughs> uh, all right, I'm I'm done. Where's the Where's the band? Uh, this is hilarious. Um, nobody remembers. There you go. You guys are like what? 
Uh, that was that was that was the answer in there, you know. And so if, if we said that in there is it, you guys would say, well, what was that, and what does it mean? Okay, what what is it? What does it mean? The reason I had Melanie read it and I didn't read it this morning is because if I had read it, nobody would have said what is it and what does it mean. Everyone would have said, oh that, oh yeah. Uh huh. How long is this going to take? Because I've heard that one. You see the problem with language and the problem with familiarity? Is we, we begin to take the posture without even realizing it of these high school kids that had all the answers to all the questions before I even finished the question because it's not like they even had to think. It was I was hitting a button and the mechanism worked and they knew the answer to spit out and it was very mechanical and very rote and, and very cliche and, and we can get so caught up into that ourselves that, that we never even stop and think about what is going on, what does it look like, what does it taste like, what is the dust in Palestine hanging in the air, shining in the sunlight, in the heat feel like as Jesus is interacting with these people and and why is this of all the possible answers what he chooses to give them and when he says it to them in Aramaic what do they hear and how does that contextualize for them and what is their response and why and and what is really going on and what's the takeaway from that for us like that doesn't happen with us we just we hear oh the great commandment yeah 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 Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, um, and love your neighbor at yourself. But, but wait a second. Love your neighbor as yourself isn't found with love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. And how come in Mark it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's turn to Mark chapter 12, and we'll fly through this real quick. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating and noticing that Jesus had had given them a good answer about the law, about, about the faith, about things that had to do with God. He asked them, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And there's no commandment greater than these. There's, there's no commandment. There's no one commandment. There's no one greater commandment than what I just told you. Those two are the pinnacle. Nothing else supersedes those. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in answering that God is one and there is none other like him. To love the Lord with all your heart and with all your understanding with all your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he says to this guy, so the the questioned becomes the questioner, or the one who was asked the question now becomes the one in authority. And he looks at this person and says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't answer as a pupil who needed to give testimony to a teacher. Jesus answered as one in authority where his word was the final word. And from then on, 
no one dared ask him any more questions. If you will, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, in the beginning of of the Bible, it's one of the five books referred to as the Pentateuch. And what we see in Deuteronomy, which is kind of like the second giving of the law is what the name Deuteronomy means. What we see in Deuteronomy is in chapter 4, the kind of telling again and the commanding of the Israelites to be obedient. And so we see that in chapter 4, and then that carries on into uh, chapter 5. And in chapter 5, we see the giving again of the Ten Commandments. So chapter 4 concludes with uh, talking about the forbidding of idol worship, that God is the one God, that He is the God you're supposed to worship, cities of refuge, instructions about the law. And then, like I said, in chapter 5, we see the Ten Commandments once again. So the whole giving of the Ten Commandments, that ends kind of chapter 5, and then we come right into chapter 6, and this is what chapter 6 says of Deuteronomy. These are the commands. What are the commands? The Ten Commandments, that God is one, that idol worship is forbidden. These are the commands, decrees, and laws that the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all of his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, promised you." Now here comes what is called uh, in for what was called for the Hebrews. It was the, the basis of their education. It was the pinnacle for them in terms of Old Testament law. It's called the Shema. And it says this: Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And these commands that I give you today are to be upon your hearts and impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. The idea is they're right here on the center of your forehead, kind of going before you. They're on your hands so that they're always in front of you. They're on your doorposts and on your gates as you come and as you go. As, whatever, as you're coming in and out, that you're always affected and, and always confronted by the need to remember the law. It's always there. It's dominating your thinking. It's pressing in on you. Everything that's going on in your mind is going to th- then have this kind of invade into it and color and change and shape it. This is going to dominate you this is going to dominate you. That it would get all the way down to the deepest recesses of your being and, and impress your heart. It would, it would literally shape and bend and torque in your heart so that out of your heart you would follow, observe, and remember the Lord your God. So then it continues. 
And it talks about when, when you're asked someday why you do this, it's because you were slaves once and God brought you out of slavery and it keeps going. But, but where is love your neighbor as yourself? It's not there. Where is it? If you turn to Leviticus, which is a couple books to the left, Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19 is a fascinating passage. And we pick it up uh, in verse 4. Well, let's just read the whole thing. So starting at the beginning of chapter 19, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Meaning come out, be different culturally, set yourself apart because I'm set apart. Each of you must respect his mother and father and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. By the way, you've heard me say this before, but the tone in the Old Testament is more about adult people respecting in their, their elderly mothers and fathers that have no one to care for them. I mean, there's a very strong sense in the people that are hearing this are adults that are hearing the law. And so respecting father and mother isn't, isn't a four-year-old respecting uh, mom. It's, it's somebody that can understand the law and respecting, being willing to take care of and sacrifice for uh, a parent who is blind because they didn't have glasses, who is lame, who cannot provide for themselves, who cannot work, and you respect your parents. Do not turn to idols or make gods of cast metal for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. And when you sacrifice a fellowship offering to the Lord, sacrifice it in such a way that it will be accepted on your behalf it shall be eaten on the day you sacrifice it or on the next day. Anything left over until the third day must be burned up. If any of it is eaten on the third day, it is impure and will be not accepted. Whoever eats it will be held responsible because he has desecrated what is holy to the Lord. That person must be cut off from his people. This is serious stuff. God is prescribing commandments to these people. And when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. So when you go and you harvest and things fall to the ground, don't come back through and make sure you maximize the profit by getting every little bit that's there. Rather, leave that because that's what, what, what poor people or immigrants are supposed to be able to come in and, and use to feed themselves. So in other words, it all belongs to me, and as your work in the field, I'm commanding you, let a portion of it remain for those who have none. And the alien is the immigrant. The stranger, the foreigner who comes in, doesn't have a family history there, doesn't own property there, doesn't have a network that can catch him or her or them, and there's going to be provision for those people that they would be able to be taken care of. Do not lie. Do not deceive one another. Do not swear falsely by my name and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Do not defraud your neighbor or rob him. Do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. In other words, the way you treat your worker matters to me. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God, and I am the Lord. Verse 15. 
Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Do not, do not go about spreading slander among your people. Do not do anything that endangers your neighbor's life, for I am the Lord. Do not hate your brother in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so you will not share in his guilt. Verse 18, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So Jesus is sitting here with a bunch of Pharisees, a bunch of people that are trying to trick him, a bunch of people that don't want to don't wanna receive him as, as being the one in authority sent from God. And so the easiest way to discredit him, the easiest way to falsify him, the, the easiest way to marginalize and get rid of him is the sacred text, the law, the, the religious stuff, the, the orthodoxy. And so they're trying to test him and they're trying to say, let's get this guy talking because if he talks enough, he might say something that we can all of a sudden say, that's new teaching. You see, that's new teaching. It's not orthodoxy. It's not true. It's not the way of our people. This guy's a false prophet, and so we can get rid of him. And so they're, they're trying to get him talking, and so they say, which is the greatest commandment? Because if you're going to really err, why not just put it under the, you know, kind of draw it all the way into the light and say, what's the greatest thing? And if he gets that wrong, it's really easy to kind of discredit him. And so Jesus gets this question, and he doesn't say, listen, you're trying to trap me. I'm going to keep my mouth shut until my lawyer gets here. He doesn't say, um, you know, whatever. He, he goes right to the heart of what they're going to test him against. The Shema, the, 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 the hallowed kind of sacred text of the people. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength. And then he says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And above these, there is no one command that is greater. And the religious ruler who was probably a fairly shrewd guy says, wow, okay, you've answered well in saying that God is one and that to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. If you turn to Amos chapter 22, Amos is one of the minor prophets. It's kind of hard to find. It's right after Joel. Amos, uh, I'm sorry, it's not chapter 22. My bad. I wrote it down wrong. Now I'm going to have to sift through it. All right. Um, it's uh, chapter 5. In chapter 5, it says in verse 21, I hate and I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. This is God speaking. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. But, 
meaning rather, let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Isaiah 58 talks about true fasting. It says very much the same thing. It, it says that the people are, are, are fasting and seeking God and, and yelling out to God and, and searching after God. I mean, they're, they're spiritual. They're very spiritual people. And they say, why have we fasted if you're not seeing it? Why have we humbled ourselves if you're not noticing it? God, God, we're really frustrated. You're hidden. You seem very far. You seem disinterested. We seem like we're left to ourselves, like we're not, we're not getting anything from you. And, and it goes on, and, and it says that God replies, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please, meaning that for you, the spiritual stuff just occupies from 5.05 to 6 o'clock p.m. That it, you know what I'm saying? That it's... It occupies just a little bit of time when you act very spiritual, but it doesn't define you. Because on those days, you do as you please. You exploit all your workers, and your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other, your neighbor, with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes, doing a bunch of religious action? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, the foreigner, the alien, the poor, who are going to be able to come through and glean off the fields? And to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. And when you see the naked, to clothe him. And to not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Your relatives who are blind, unable to work, can't take care of themselves. And if you do these things, then your light will break forth like the dawn. And your healing will quickly appear. And then your righteousness will go before you. And the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help. And he will say, here I am. This is one of those weird passages for me. Um, This great commandment and just the spider web that goes all throughout Scripture, pulling together almost all these major themes into kind of one holistic amalgam. It's hard for me because here's the thing. Um, how, How do you really convey that? accurately how do you plumb the depths of truth and then also reach into a a group a church a gathering of people and try and draw to the surface the dark recesses of of our hearts individually and collectively and then somehow do the, the the magical which is to get these hearts to break and desire this truth and and to somehow then covenant into that or to cry aloud to God that God would help um, renew in us the the heart that would take this on as its primary dominant soul objective and focus in life and that walking out of here this would get somehow crushed together so that 
as we move on in life, it would dominate every aspect of everything, that, that it would be like it's on our hands, almost tattooed, and, and on the front of our minds, so that everything gets filtered through that. And when we walk out of our house and come into our house, what is defining us is this ongoing dialectic with the commands and the reality and the holiness of God with us in our everyday life, and that when we see other people, that we understand that that, is inextricably connected to the other. That, that my love of God is in part manifested through my love of neighbor. And that, that that would almost over time reshape everything about me to where I would wander out into the desert for a spiritual conversation. That I'd go skip a football game or a party on a Friday night, even if I'm a 17-year-old guy or girl that's being waited on by friends because I want to talk more about what matters most. Like, how in a Sunday morning is it possible with, with three bullet points and an anecdote and a joke to do that or to even communicate it? I, I'm just overwhelmed by this because there's something about it that makes me just want to sit back and look at it and, and be in awe of it. Um, I, I'm a Christian because I'm in awe of, of God and I'm in awe of this faith and I'm in awe of all the little things God has given me. That, that make me go, wow, there's something unique about this. When I was wrestling with Christianity, and is this true, and is this real, and is this not just man-made, like, uh, it, was, it was a really difficult conversation for me over a long period of time. And there were little things, little bright lights that made me sit in awe of this. Go to the end of the book of John. End of the book of John, it's a, it's a story where Jesus, after the resurrection, is out, comes and, and, and meets um, all the, the disciples, and they're out doing what? They're out fishing. Um, so it's John chapter 21. And they're way out in the boat. Jesus comes to the shore. They haven't caught anything. And this is kind of like this poetic thing of that Jesus is doing, like r reminding them that their fruit in their life is going to come not through their own effort or their own successes. They've just run in fear from the government authorities and that Jesus was just crucified. Now there's a price on their heads. And, and they run, and they're going back to do what they always did. They, they, they were raised as little kids on the shores of Galilee. They're fishermen. They know how to fish. They, they ran back to doing what they know how to do, and they, they fish all night, and guess what happens? They don't catch any fish. And Jesus shows up, and Jesus says, cast your nets on this side of the boat. Yeah, we've been here all night, Jesus. We're not idiots, Jesus. We've, we've tried both sides. We've tried every part of the lake. The fish just aren't biting. And, you know, I guess biting is not what you say when there's a net, right? Um, there ain't no fish. They throw the nets over. 
the nets almost break because there's so many fish. They, they pull those nets into the boat. They know exactly what's going on. Jesus is doing that same little game he always does with them when he's kind of teaching them. It's me, and it's my power, and it's my calling, and it's my direction that's really going to bear the fruit. It's not your own human effort. You surrender to me. You, you follow me. You have faith in me. So they come to the shore, and then we pick it up here. And Jesus says in verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you, you just caught. And Simon, Simon Peter climbed aboard, and he dragged the net ashore. So the boat is kind of pulled up onto a little beach. You can picture it, right? Just like a, like a big rowboat kind of thing, pulled up onto the beach. The, the net is still on the boat with all these fish. Peter jumps into the boat, and he's dragging the net over the side of the boat and then up onto the sand. And Peter um, does this, and then it says, it was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And it keeps going. When I was 22 and I read this, you know what that communicated to me? It communicated to me everything. Because the arguments I was reading were scholars talking about these books were written 100 years after Jesus. And they, were, they weren't written by these people they say they were written by. And they were written way later and... And, and then, even then, the, you know, the, these the corrupt manuscripts and all sorts of things. And, and uh, you know, there's nothing really there kind of authoritative that you kind of hang your hat on. That 153, that number, that meant everything to me. Why? Because 100 years later, you don't say 153. You say, the net was full of large fish. Or you, you say the net was full of like almost 200 fish. Or the net was full of 155 fish. You don't say 153 fish. How do you get to where you're saying 153 fish? This is, this is how you get to saying that. They counted the fish. The disciples of Jesus, after they cooked breakfast and they had all these fish, and they were like, wow, this is a pretty crazy amount of fish. And, and Peter's like, I bet it's like 300. And Thomas was like, no, it's not more than 60. And, and then, like, Andrew's in the middle actually counting them. One, two, three, 153. And they're all like, wow, that's crazy. That beats the record by like 95 because they probably knew like that, that growing up, you know, on, on, the, on wood, they'd carved the most number of fish ever caught in this, this lake. You know, I, in 153 bested it by how they, they knew how many fish. And from campfire to campfire um, from this point on, when people would get around and they would tell the stories, they would, would talk about Christ and they would talk about kind of him forgiving Peter for the betrayal and, and the commissioning of these disciples. They would talk about this kind of thing that Jesus did to them. They didn't catch any fish. Throw it over. Yeah, we know. No, throw it over. And they pulled in. It's 153 fish. And that got passed on and passed on. And when John, as an old man, is ready to tell this story and he's, and he's talking and whether he's having somebody transcribe it as he talks or, or however it's happening and he's telling the story, it's comma, 153 comma, and he continues the story because that 153 mattered. It mattered so much because they counted those fish. It mattered so much because when they counted it, it, it represented something to them. 
And to me, when I read this at age 22, it represented to me that there's something different about these Gospels. C.S. Lewis, I love one of the things he says because he's saying, listen, um, everyone wants to say that the Gospels are fiction. And he says, here's a test of how you know whether something's fiction or not. You read fiction your whole life, and then you read the Gospels, and you'll know whether they read like fiction or not. And he says, and they don't. He says, I've been reading fiction my whole life. Lewis was regarded as the, the foremost scholar of 16th century British literature. In fact, he wrote um, a book for this Oxford set that was like the, still is regarded as one of the, the greatest kind of sets ever. And he wrote the book, A History of English Literature in the 16th Century. A hundred years of English literature, and he wrote the volume that basically critiques, analyzes, talks about, discusses themes, trends, everything. Um, and, and what happened in the 16th century? Anyone remember? Shakespeare happened in the 1500s. We're not talking about a light period. Um, uh, the Fairy Queen by, I think it was uh, Spencer. Uh, we're, we're not talking about a light period of English literature at all. Lewis was regarded as the foremost thinker in, in 16th century British literature. And he looks at this and says, listen, I've spent my whole life reading fiction. There's, this isn't fiction. And I believe him. And when I come to Jesus talking about this, I'm like, there was no precedence for this in his day. There was no precedence for it other than all of Scripture and these deep, subtle themes and understanding the heart and the mind and the will of God as God is talking about our devotion and fidelity to Him and understanding what that looks like with regard to His commands and what it looks like with regard to our fellow neighbor and, and that all of these things kind of come together and there's such an organic simplicity to the way Jesus just takes these things and draws them to the surface that when I look at it, I stand in awe of it. It makes everything come together. It makes sense what Jesus says here in just a couple sentences. It takes all of it and wraps it up and you just look at it and what do you say to it? How do you analyze it? How do you describe it? How do you say, oh, that's so smart, I'm going to You don't. You just go, whoa. Whoa. That's big. It's really, 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 really big. And then that scares me because big things scare me because then it's like, wow, that's really, 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 really big and I don't know that I'm up to that task. I don't always feel like I'm up to that task. If I was Shane Claiborne and I was making my own pants and, and wearing dreadlocks and, and doing really, really, really crazy things all the time, I would feel maybe more up to the task. But I've got four daughters and, and reading books at the end of every night is like, in some ways, the height of obedience for, for me as a dad or the, the height of fullness, right? Maybe it's good, but it doesn't look like making your own pants and, and you know, and I've got friends that work in inner city with immigrants and, and refugees and asylum seekers and they give their life for that. And I, I, sometimes I look at that and I'm like, man, I, I don't know if I feel big enough. 
And I don't know that it's about me feeling big enough. I think that's the wrong idea. I think the idea when you see something so big like this, you, you do, you just sit and you, you're in awe of it. And you take a deep breath and you say, okay, God, if all of this is supposed to shape me, if all of this is supposed to inform me, if all of this is supposed to gain my allegiance and my commitment where I'm following you and making it about you, then, then where do we go from here? And I think God will say, my, my little child, that's all I've been waiting for. That's all I've been waiting for all these years was just permission to get at your heart. And I'll walk with you in the morning when you rise, in the evening when you go to bed, when you sit, when you deal with difficulties and suffering and pain or joys or confusion. I'll walk with you. And just like I ask fathers and mothers to do with their kids, I will do with you. I will shape you. This will be our conversation. All of life will be the story that will unfold and, and we will always talk about what my will for your life should look like, does look like, and how that really paradoxically is going to bring about your greatest joy and the greatest degree of intimacy and felt love with me and, and it will all come together. All I needed was for you to realize that you need me and that this conversation matters more than any other conversation. I, I think we stop and we're in awe and then we sit down and we open up our hearts and we let God come and start to work on us. That's called discipleship. Here's the level playing field for us. It's where I'm at. I need to be a good Christian. I need to be a better Christian, which means I need to do those, those good things. I need to do those Christian things. And so, so I, I do some of those. Um, and I, and I, I try and I, I go here and there and I, I do this and I, I do that. But, but this is where I'm at. And after a while, I burn out. Because I'm, I'm reaching to try and do this and present a certain way. But at the end of the day, this is where I'm at. It, it's not natural and I can't sustain it. The idea is when we really turn ourselves over, that grace... God's grace lifts us, transforms us changes, us, changes us, makes us a new creation, and helps us become like Christ so that where we're centered, where we desire to be, our frame of reference is here. Not that we bend and, and do this Herculean effort to go do works, but that we can't sustain, but that, but that where we reside and what defines us and the, the decisions we've made so that what we're, what we're doing day to day and who we're, we're doing it with and, and how we see reality, it is just, it's, it's becoming a right relationship with God and others. It's, it's becoming our righteousness. And, and grace makes us just. And so we get it wrong sometimes by thinking it all centers around us and then we got to go add.
add some spirituality to our life or do some things so that, so that on our, our scorecard we can, we can check a couple boxes. But it's really starting from this, this point of us being at the center and bending out, and we just can't bend out enough or sustain that enough. And when we get tired, when we get depressed, or when we get worn down, or, or when we face opposition, it's just like, man, we just can't keep doing this. And I, I loved what Rick Gerhart had to say last week, if you remember this. And he made a very specific, fine distinction. I'll, I'll rehearse it for you one more time because it's easy to hear this one wrong. And that's why we miss it for so long. But here's the, here's the distinction. Creation matters because it's God's creation. Creation matters because the creator matters. Creation matters because the creator values it And if the creator values it, we should value it too. So here's where we can go wrong with that. Are you saying God cares just as much about creation as he does me? Here's the distinction. We're a part of creation. Do you get that? The minute we say, are you telling me that God values creation as much as he values me? It shows that subtly we keep forgetting that we're a part of creation and we always treat ourselves as the center point of everything we're evaluating. I'm at the center. That's what what Rick meant by anthropomorphic, meaning uh, man-centered. I start here and I'm evaluating what you're talking about. There's God. There's creation. Are you telling me God thinks I'm on the level with birds and fishes? No, no. If, if, if it came between your life and a bird, um, I think God would spare your life, okay? Um, if my wife came to me and said, Ken, um, do you value me or do you value your friend? Well, I'm going to choose my wife, right? Doesn't mean I don't value my friend. So we, we get into this weird thing with this missing the distinction. It's like God, creation, me. Are you saying God thinks creation's just as important as I am, I'm saying no. If you start where God's at and you look out, you see sixth day of creation, fourth, fifth day of creation, but it's creation. It's all crea- it's creation. Now, if we're highly regarded as sons and daughters as part of his creation, that does give us an unbelievable primacy and responsibility. But what we're, what we're trying to argue here is all of creation matters, and the birds matter, and the fish in the sea matter, and the beauty matters, and creation matters. We're not outside of creation. We're a part of it. And yes, we might have a higher role in it, but we're a part of creation. That's a distinction. Does that make sense? Do you understand that distinction? When we think that we're at the center, we add all this stuff to our faith. I'm going to go do these works. I'm going to go... Um, be a good person. I'm going to start making my own pants like Shane Claiborne. You know, like I'm going, to, I'm going to do all these things. And what we're doing is we're trying to add to us. But it's our effort adding to us. It's not changing us. And it's what the religious leaders in Jesus' day did. They made their own clothes. They, they, they made these long flowing gowns these things that hung from their hats. They began to look very religious. They began to do certain things on the Sabbath. And it was like this um, salad bar. I'll have a little bit of that. 
I'll have a little bit of this. I'll put some of this on my plate. And it's beginning to build a really cool-looking um, kind of platform, resume. But it misses the reality, which is our heart is what God's after, not our resume. Our heart is what God's after, our resume. God doesn't want to work on our stuff, and he doesn't want to work on our actions. He wants to work on the core of who we are, that it would be shaped and changed, and that it would be absolutely devoted and loyal to him. By the way, the word love, I was on the phone with Gary Bashir's talking about this sermon. Gary Bashir is a professor at Western Seminary, been there for 30 years, theology professor, and we're talking about the word heart, and we're talking about the word love. And it's... Um, it's amazing how close the analogy is between our, our relationship with God and, and marriage. Because our love for God really is a, is a commitment to not worship other gods, but to hold Him highest. It's a covenant. It's about being loyal. It's about devotion. It's about fidelity. It's about trusting that even if this isn't giving you the feelings or the emotions you want, um, that it's where you're going you're gonna to choose. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna hold on to this. You're going to persevere with this. And our word love, we've met, we, and the word heart too, I mean, both those words together, they mean to us so much our felt emotions. And our felt emotions change. And our felt emotions go up and down and they go left and right. And, and so what we mean in an American sense by love and heart is absolutely the opposite of, of love and heart in, in what's meant in the great commandment. And God is after our heart, not just us going and doing certain things. He's after the core identity of, of where we're at, our allegiance, not just us looking and feeling spiritual. God wants at our heart. So there are things that we see in Christianity where people get saved, where they profess that they want Jesus as a Savior. We also see this thing where uh, we renew kind of a commitment. You know what? Rededicate is what we call. I, I used to kind of be like, oh, rededicate. I don't know what to think about that. I think it's great. Now, I, I thought about it more and more. I think it's great. That we would come to a point where we go, whoa, it's so easy for my love to grow cold. It's so easy for, for me to begin to forget I need to rededicate. Not my own effort, but my willingness to make this the priority in my life. In our marriages, we need to learn that we rededicate our devotion and our commitment. We remember our marriage vows. The whole idea of communion, if we were doing communion right now, is Jesus says, you do this in remembrance of me. And if you remember the first communion, it's like you do this bread and all that, remembering that you were once slaves and I brought you out of that. And so the whole thing that drives our concern for immigrants is going, you know what? I once was a stranger. I once was a foreigner. And God delivered me and allowed me to have a land and a home. And so now when I see a stranger or a foreigner, oh, I've got empathy because I once was a stranger and a foreigner. God says, remember, you were slaves once too. It's this empathy. It's this remembering. And I talked to a, a Jewish guy one time, and he says, when we do the Passover, there's this idea that to forget to do the Passover 
um, is sin because forgetting is sin. And I loved that phrase, forgetting is sin. That, that when you forget to do this, what you're really, the symbol, the bread and the wine, when you're forgetting to do the bread and the wine, what it, it really is saying is that you're forgetting about what the bread and the wine pointed to, that God delivered you. And if you're forgetting that God delivered you, what does it say in Deuteronomy 6? When your children ask you, when, when they, they, they want to know why we do these things and why we have this God, because we once were slaves and God delivered us, and it says, do not forget. And so forgetting is sin. To be righteous is to remember and so rededicating is a form of remembering this is what's supposed to be on my doorpost and on my frame and on the bumper sticker and, and, and everywhere in my life. This is what's supposed to dominate, what's supposed to shape me. This is what informs and transforms me so that I become somebody different. I don't want to stay the way I am. I don't know about you guys, but I want to be different. And being different doesn't come from three more principles. You guys want to know why, why, why at Antioch we don't do three principles every week? You want to know why? I bet you do, because we don't. And, and, you, and it's, I, I could give you three, three principles. Every night you should read your Bible. Every um, morning you should pray to God. And every midweek you should whatever. Those are three principles. Are they biblical? Yes. Are they true? Are they wise? Yes. How many of those do you already know in your life? I don't know about you, but I know about a million principles. My problem isn't that I need three more. My problem is that I don't do the ones I know. My problem isn't that I'm, I'm just absolutely ignorant of what, what I ought to do and that I ought to love you guys and I ought to love God and I ought to serve. My, my, my problem isn't that I, I need more principles. My problem is my heart needs to be redeemed. And so the focal point here is how do we wrestle with this fact that we are people in need of redemption. We are people in need of a Savior, not just back when we committed our lives to Christ, but we want to be sanctified daily in that relationship with him, that we need to submit and surrender and not try and run out in front of God, that my priorities should be serving his priorities for me, not finding my own, that it's not about my feelings and trying to, to be a good person but also get the happiness or pleasure that I want, but that it's in surrendering all of it and saying, God, I'll follow even if it's a dry spell. I'll follow even if I'm confused. So it's about the heart. And so let's just read this in closing. Actually, if you turn to Psalm, let's just look at Psalm 51. There's an old camp song that kind of takes its cues from this psalm. I promised I wasn't going to say anything in Spanish because I would sound really silly and I'll, I won't sing anything either because that sound really silly. But you guys, some of you will remember this song, but Psalm 51.10. Let's, uh, let's just read from the beginning here. Psalm 51, this will be the closing prayer. Have mercy on me, O my God, according to your unfailing love and according to your great compassion. 
blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. I can't do the things I know I ought to do. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. That's the heart, by the way, in Hebrew culture. The seat of the emotions is the heart. You desire truth, wholeness, integrity in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Clean me with the hyssop branch and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. and Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. And then this is verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And that's my prayer this morning and for this series as we look at the great commandment that at the end of the day, in our inmost being, in our heart, we would learn the love of a Savior, learn the love of a God, and be absolutely and radically transformed into loving people, loving our God and one another. Amen.